this morning, uh, and we're actually in the middle of a series um, that we're calling Narratives Around the Fire. We've been in a series for the past, I don't know how many months, uh, called he, uh, Reading Hebrew, and we've been looking at Hebrew scripture to try to understand what is that Old Testament, the thing we call the Old Testament all about, and how is it that we can read it in a way where we're not just putting our objectives and our uh, positions from this uh, 21st century under understanding on this ancient text, but how can we sort of understand what's going on and, and reread some of those old stories that we read as kids with a new light and a new understanding without bringing in some of our old coping mechanisms. Um, and so we've been looking at, as we did our reading Hebrew, and then we looked at poetry and the Psalms, and now we're in the middle of Old Testament narratives and sort of looking at those. One of the things that I wanted to do was to just take some of those very old old school um, stories in the Old Testament and look at them again, but particularly the ones that have to do with the theme of fire. And as we're looking at them, I thought, gosh, it's summertime. One of the best things about summertime is when the weather starts to cool off in the evenings a little bit. We've gotten that for the past like two or three days, right? And then you can like actually light a fire without feeling like you're dying. And you can sit around it maybe as the sun goes down or once the stars start to twinkle and you can begin to gaze into the fire and ask questions and talk about things with the people that sit around the fire that maybe you wouldn't necessarily been as comfortable talking about otherwise. So that's one of my favorite things, and that was kind of the inspiration. How, what would it look like for us to sort of say, how do we revisit some of these narratives and some of these stories in a new way to understand a new thing? Now, uh, we've talked so far, we did this last week, we talked about this in our reading Hebrew, about the importance of understanding how narrative literature works. And so on each of your tables, there is a little sheet of paper, and it has a, it's a graphic organizer. And my daughter walked in this morning, and she looked at this, and she goes, this is something I see at school. Why are, why is this here, right? And I get it, I get it. It might feel a little bit juvenile to have this graphic organizer being handed out in a upper, you know, like middle high school, but mostly adult service where we're like asking you to plot the characters and the setting. And I get it, I get it, I get it. It feels a little juvenile. However, what I will tell you is that this is still some of the techniques that I use in order to dive into scripture, both for my personal study, as well as for preparing for messages. And one of the things that I've, I've shared with you before, and I hope you know, is that I'm much less interested in trying to figure out how to have a very polished um, message where I go behind the curtain and then magically come out and say, ta-da, here it is. I'm much more interested in helping equip you to figure out what does it look like to feed yourself spiritually? What does it look like to open open the Bible and be able to read something and say, I have the tools in order to figure out how to feed myself and understand what God might be communicating to me through this text. Um, so anyways, this is the very juvenile, I get it, looking, however, very helpful graphic organizer whenever you're looking at narrative stories. Um, now, when... Um, in order to stay in the series today, I knew that it was going to be parent dedication. In order to stay in the series today, I wanted to pick a narrative that had to do with parents and children and fire. <laughs> and it was tricky. <laughs> it was tricky because you get into all sorts of narrative stories that maybe feel a little unpleasant and a little bit scary 
as a parent. And so I was like, oh, maybe I should just like not do the sermon series today. Maybe we should just pivot and go to something else. Um, and then I like went hemmed and hawed and I went back and forth, and back and forth. And I decided, nah, we're going to do it. We're going to do the parent and child and fire story. Um, so we're going to go ahead and read it together. And the way that we're going to read it together was this. Well, first I have to preface with this. When my oldest was first born, I remember holding her in the, we hadn't even left the hospital yet. And I immediately had a major panic attack because I could not get her to go to sleep in the little bin on wheels that they tell you you have to make your child sleep in. I couldn't do it. I could get her to sleep when I was holding her, but then immediately I would start to fall asleep and the nurse would come in and scold me. How dare you put your child in danger? They need to sleep in the bin. And I was like, I can't get her to sleep in the bin because every time I put her down, she starts screaming and then I do not get to sleep at all. And so my husband, who is asleep in the corner somewhere at 2 a.m., and I am trying to like put this baby down and it won't go down. And all of a sudden I just lose it. And I just start like wailing and I kick him because why is he sleeping anyways, right? And I'm holding her and I'm like, he's like, what? what's wrong? What's wrong? And I said, I can't do it. She won't sleep in the bin. And if she doesn't sleep in the bin, she'll never learn to self-soothe. And if she doesn't learn to self-soothe, then she'll never be able to go to school. And if she doesn't go to school, then she'll never grow up and be a productive member of society. Like, what are we going to do? We've already failed. Now, I know that that sounds ridiculous, but that is like really legitimately 100% how I felt. Now, in that moment, I was able to be calmed down, um, and, uh, and I calmed myself down, but there were many, many freak-out moments as a parent along the way. Another one that came up was trying to figure out, how am I supposed to teach my kids about God? How am I supposed to teach him about this spiritual world that I love and have invested so much of my life into? How am I supposed to help them understand who God is that loves them so much, that has created them, that has created this miracle child and brought her into this world? How am I supposed to teach her that life is about like participating in this world and enjoying it fully to the glory of God? experiencing heaven on earth? How am I supposed to help her understand that even when there's pain and brokenness, there is a God who loves them so much that that God entered into the pain and the brokenness so that we could come out the other way as a new creation so that they could provide rescue? How, how could I communicate and teach them that they were this rescued child of God? And I wanted to take that opportunity so seriously, but it was met with this other tension. And it was the tension of all of the baggage and brokenness of my own spiritual upbringing. It was met with this tension where sometimes I had experienced scripture being used to manipulate or shame or control. It was used to, uh, uh, in a ways that I don't think now it was ever meant to be used. 
And so I wasn't really sure, how am I supposed to teach this child about God who loves them in an earnest and sincere way, but at the same time avoid some of the broken coping mechanisms for scripture reading or the watered down truth of God? How do I do this in a way that still allows for the doubts and the questions and the uncertainties that I even have as an adult and take their questions and their doubts and their uncertainties seriously, but also be faithful to what I believe is true? And once again, I had that moment of, I don't know how to do this. They're never going to become a follower of Jesus. I felt so paralyzed. And when I thought about that, I realized that actually the story about the child and the parents and the fire was actually a really great story for us to look at today. So we're going to read this narrative from actually a very special book. Um, I actually have two copies of this very special book. Um, This is our, my kids, Jesus Storybook Bible that we read from when they were little. This is the first version of it that got all ripped up, so we bought a second version. And uh, it also got ripped up, despite the fact that they were older when we got the second version. They still, it's been well-loved. It's been well-loved. And so I wanted to read it from this narrative because I actually, if you've never heard me talk about this book before, I actually think that this is a fantastic book, both for parents who are reading stories to kids and trying to find one that doesn't have the whitewashed version of scripture, both literally and figuratively, the whitewashed version of scripture. Um, I think they do a great job with different illustrations that, dip, that represent different characters that have different skin complexities and coming from different places, but it also tries to create an understanding of some of those Old Testament narratives and some of the places in the stories where they're not just like moral lessons that wrap it up in a nice little bow, but instead tell the story like we've been talking about the Old Testament telling the story that point to a future rescuer, that point to Jesus as the one who is to come. And so I loved reading this book to my kids. But in addition to that, as an adult, I found it really helpful to begin to understand some of the insights of how it is the Bible is pointing to Jesus. How the Old Testament stories that like David and Goliath, which there's no Jesus in there, but they begin to help me cultivate an imagination for how it is that it is. So if you're an adult and you're like, I don't have any kids, I don't, it's okay. You can order this Bible on Amazon. Like it's fine and read through it. And I encourage you to read through it in one sitting because it's really, really fascinating how the entire narrative that they kind of have crafted comes together. I think they do a great job with it. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to read the story of Abraham sacrificing his son, Isaac. Oh, yes, 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 yes. All right. They call it the present. And we're going to have some pictures on the screen. God knew that his secret rescue plan could only work if Abraham trusted him completely. God had to make sure Abraham would do whatever he asked. So a few years later, God asked Abraham to give him a present. Abraham liked giving presents to God. He gave God his animals. They were called sacrifices. And they were a way to say, I love you to God. But this time, God didn't want a lamb or a goat. 
God wanted Abraham to give him something more, much more. God wanted Abraham to give him his son, his only son, his son he loved, Isaac. Put his boy on the altar and kill him as a sacrifice? How could God want him to do such a terrible thing? Abraham didn't understand. But he did know that God was his father who loved him. And so Abraham trusted him. Early the next morning, Abraham and Isaac set off. They climbed up the steep stony trail to the mountain. Isaac carried the wood on his back, and his father carried the knife and the coals. Papa, Isaac asked, we have everything except we forgot the lamb for the sacrifice. God will give us the lamb, son, Abraham said. Also, sneakily, like, what is happening? I don't, this doesn't answer all of my questions. I just want to be clear. But they built an altar and they laid the wood on top. Abraham asked his son to climb to the top of the wood. Isaac didn't understand, but he knew that his father loved him. And so he trusted him. He climbed up onto the altar and Abraham tied his boy to the wood. Isaac didn't struggle or try to run away. He just laid there quietly and didn't make a sound. What the heck? Everything was ready. So Abraham took the knife. Tears were filling up in his eyes. Pain was filling up in his heart. His hand was shaking. He lifted the knife high into the air. Stop, God said. Don't hurt the boy. I want, you, I want him to live and not die. I know now that you love me because you would have given me your only son. And Abraham felt his heart leap with joy. He unbounded Isaac and folded his arms. Great sobs shook and the, old man, the man's whole body, scalding tears filled his eyes. And for a long time, he stayed there like that, each in each other's arms, the boy and his dad. Suddenly, Abraham saw a ram caught in some brambles, the sacrifice. God had given them what they needed just in time. The ram would die, so Isaac didn't have to. And so Abraham sacrificed the ram instead of his son. And as they sat there on the mountaintop, watching the embers of fire die in the cool night air, the stars above them sparkled in the velvety sky. And God helped Abraham and Isaac understand something. God wanted his people to live, not die. God wanted to rescue his people, not punish them. But they must trust him. One day, someone will be born unto your family, God promised them. And he will bring happiness into the whole world. God was getting ready to give the whole world a wonderful present. It would be God's way to tell his people, I love you. Many years later, another son would climb another hill, carrying wood on his back. Like Isaac, he would trust his father and do what his father asked. He wouldn't struggle and he wouldn't run away. 
Who was he? God's son, his only son, the son he loved, the lamb of God. Now, I'm not going to try to justify why Abraham, why God wanted Abraham to sacrifice Isaac in the first place. I don't really understand it. And there are lots of scholars that have debated, did Abraham just misunderstand? In a culture of child sacrifice, was he confused and God stepped in? Or was it really about God telling him to do that and testing him? There are many, many scholars far smarter than I have that have written much more about that. But what I can relate to is the utter feeling of complete confusion that Abraham must have had and experienced in the middle of that process. God had led Abraham Abraham to this point. God had made all of these promises to Abraham. All signs pointed to the idea that things were going in the right direction. So then why would God be asking for this? Why would God be doing this? Right? Whether you're a parent or not, I know that all of us can relate to that situation. The confusion in the middle of something to be like, God, you're supposed to be a good God. You're supposed to be the one who has provided for me. Why is this seemingly so confusing in this moment? Why have we come to this place? Now, if you're only looking at that narrative of the lower story, then it feels like a terrible trick that God is playing on Abraham. It feels like in and of itself, why is this happening? But the good news is there's a whole nother narrative that's happening that's overlaid on top of that. It's what we've been calling the upper story, the story that ultimately points to Jesus. It's the story that makes it clear that when we add Jesus to the whole overarching story, we begin to understand that the whole story comes into focus. It feels a little less scary when we trust that God is actually in the process of rescuing us. Now, that doesn't mean that our lives always feel great all the time. It doesn't mean that we will never have a sleepless night where it's filled with, and we'll only have nights that are filled with good news of great joy. There will still be moments where we feel like we've come to the end of ourselves and we don't know what to do any longer. But but then there will be these moments where we'll have an opportunity to trust God and that he is the one who is always working things out for the good of those who are called to his purpose and who love him. Now, the song that we just sang before this, I was caught by those lyrics. I thought they fit perfectly with this. You are the everlasting light. All the time and space could not contain you. You are the everlasting light. Outside of my understanding, but still within my reach. I remember um, when I was a young mom, I was telling my mom, that I thought that being a parent was really representing God to my children. And if my kids could learn to trust me, then they could also learn to trust God. Now, that sounds really great in theory, but what that did was put a terrible burden on me to never, ever, 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 ever mess up. And I messed up a lot. (laughs) 
And so whenever I messed up, it felt like I had like deceived my kid, that I had somehow like now she's never going to know God or she's going to think that God is this person who messes up. And what I had to learn was that when I failed her, that she had to learn to trust God even still. That inevitably, even when I fell short, and every parent does, God is the one who is working to rescue both me and my child. There's going to be these epic days that we're going to go on, these epic quests that we're going to go on, and we're not going to know how we're supposed to get through it. And the dangers and the perils and the pitfalls that lie ahead of you are going to seem really confusing as you walk out this narrative. But the high point, the climax of the narrative, is Jesus, that he is going to rescue us, that he can be trusted. And so as our parents come forward, and they um, are going to be dedicated, and uh, we're going to have them come forward, and we're going to introduce them to the congregation and their kiddos to the congregation, Um, my prayer for them is actually going to be that their child and them as parents find ways to trust God, that they, um, whether it's no matter what the narrative that they find themselves in the middle of, that they would find opportunities to trust God, that they would lean on him to give them direction, to give them understanding. Um, And so what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to invite our parents to come on up with their little ones. I know some of you have to grab them from somewhere and that's fine. You can do it. This does not have to be a smooth process, by the way. This, we, we get it. There's, that's fine. We're good with that. But if our families want to make their way onto the stage...